0: Hi, this is Mate, the journalist behind uh, Reporter.London. Welcome to the second edition of ReporterCast for July 2022. This time we have gone for audio only because my guest is a very busy man and preferred to speak from his home. But it's very much worth it, first of all, because truth be told, neither of us is really a beauty queen worth of regular filming but also because he is none other than edward lucas a brilliant scholar of geopolitics security and international affairs with a specialty in eastern european countries he's written endlessly about the subjects close to the heart of reporter dot london including the confluence of economic crime and security, instability, democratic degeneration, and he's done it years before most of the other experts. He's got a regular column in the Times of London newspaper, he wrote about five books on all aspects of international affairs, crime and intelligence, and is now campaigning hard to become an MP under the Lib Dem Party in the cities of London and Westminster. The very core of big power big money and dark arts and although we don't take political sides i wish you good luck mr lucas because politics needs more people like you regardless of affiliation welcome to the ReporterCast.
1: well thank you so much for having me
0: Before I get into the questions, I'm going to read a quick message from our advertisers at H5 Strategies in Bucharest. It's a consultancy advising executives and political leaders on international affairs and risks, and they're specialized in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Africa. We thank them for supporting us. Can we start hearing a little bit about your background, Mr. Lucas? How did you become interested in studying the world of geopolitics, dirty money, and Eastern Europe in particular? Do you have any anecdotes from the cold war any gapier travels any revelations that set you on this path uh, years ago thank you
1: Well I think well first of all thank you for having me on your on your podcast I I think that my childhood in Oxford in the 1960s and 70s was very influential I remember the Soviet led invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 and how upset my parents were seeing the word Czechoslovakia um, in a slogan on the wall of Longwall, a of long street in central Oxford and trying to understand how C and Z could be together in the same word which I'd never seen before I remember my mother writing letters for Amnesty International on behalf of political prisoners in the um, behind the Iron Curtain my father smuggled books into communist Czechoslovakia in 1981 and gave underground seminars there for the um, persecuted philosophers who were working as street sweepers and stokers. I myself was raising money for uh, to give scholarships to people from Polish solidarity. After the martial law crackdown, I ran at my own university, LSE, uh, an organization called Student Solidarity with Solidarity, together with some other people. And um, so this was really my life Um, during the Cold War. I cared very much about it and I wanted uh, communism to collapse more than really anything else in the world. And then when it did collapse, um, and I played a a bit of a role in that as a correspondent in Eastern Europe in the late 1980s, um, I was, unlike perhaps some of my other colleagues, I was really worried about what would happen next. I felt that Russian imperialism was not over and that we had got two things we wanted, the end of the planned economy and the end of the one-party state, but Russian imperialism, which was the sort of third leg of the problem, was still there. And so I've spent the years since then writing and worrying and campaigning and uh, doing other things uh, to try and alert people to the threat we face from, from the Kremlin
0: well indeed and um, i suppose recent events the the invasion of ukraine and the incipient genocide have vindicated your view even as many other experts uh, have been a lot more relaxed or even glib about about the threat from uh, from Putin, But bef- before we get into that, can I ask you to recall how you spent the fall of the Soviet Union? I suppose you were around uh, around the region writing articles. Could you say where you were exactly and um, when it all happened? How did you picture the future of, of, of these countries and how was that different from what actually happened?
1: I started off reporting on the collapse of the Soviet Empire in Central Europe. And I remember that very clearly, seeing the East Germans flooding into Prague on their way to West Germany and the feeling that the Berlin Wall, the division of Europe, the old Iron Curtain was just falling apart. People weren't willing to uh, shoot to kill anymore, to stop people leaving their countries. And you could see the countries falling over like dominoes. I covered the um, free elections in uh Poland in the summer of 1989 and the aftermath of that. um, I was looking at the demonstrations and um, campaigns in Communist Czechoslovakia, and I could see things had already changed in Hungary. It was only a matter of time before they were going to change in Romania, and I spent some time in December 1989 in Romania as Ceausescu's rule was collapsing. And then I moved on to the uh, Baltic states, which in those days was still occupied by the Soviet Union. 1990, uh, 91, you had pro-independence movements in power locally, but still under Soviet control in terms of the sinews of economic power and who controlled the borders. And it was very dramatic and exciting and broadly hopeful times. And I was very impressed, particularly by the support of the Russian Democrats for their um, brothers and sisters in in the Baltic states, and that was a very uplifting moment to see the huge demonstrations in support of Lithuania after the Soviet massacre there in January ni- uh, tw- uh, 1991. I was also in Washington um, quite a lot then as working for the independent as a Washington correspondent. and but I was already getting worried by the naivety and arrogance and complacency of the West towards what was happening. People didn't really seem to understand the dimensions of what was going on. And there was a desire for quick fixes and let's keep Gorbachev in power because he's our guy and sort of highly personalized rather glib approach. And then living in the Baltic States in 92, 93, 94, it was very clear to me that Russia was still a problem. They were dragging their feet on the withdrawal of the occupation forces. We could see subversion the use of dirty money, the use of uh, propaganda information as a weapon. And the Baltic states were worried about that, and my friend Leonard Meri, the Estonian president, gave a notable speech in 1994 about the threat of what was then called the Karaganov doctrine, the idea that Russia could, could and should intervene in neighbouring countries on behalf of so-called ethnic Russians. And the West just wasn't willing to listen, and so I decided that was going to be my mission, to make them listen.
0: That's great. Well, you, you certainly worked hard on that. And part of that was to write about intelligence services and the evolution of technology in, in relation to security and intelligence. But I have a left field question for you, because of course, I'm, I'm, I'm not really an expert in these things. Like most people, I suppose, I read John Le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and there's a rather worrying line in there saying that the security services are the only real expression of a nation's character, but it comes from the villain in the book. And I just wonder, is that some pompous line some villain would say, or is that a deeper message from the author himself? How how do you read that?
1: Well, I think I'm I'm a huge fan, particularly of the early um, John Le Carre books, the the smiley smiley ones. (laughs) And I think he obviously bigs up the importance of the intelligence services because he's writing about them, and I think it's true up to a point that a intelligence service is the sort of distillation of some aspects of a country's identity, and certainly the combination of the, the, the behind-the-scenes old boys' club way, in which Britain certainly used to run, the heavy influence of Oxford and Cambridge the um, ideas of the sort of romantic notions of the um, British Empire of um, selfless brave uh, men usually occasionally women on in far-flung parts of the world doing things that are uh, secret and very important it it brings together a lot of elements of our of our national myth I'm not sure it really um, corresponds to that completely. I think that intelligence services are basically bureaucracies in the end, and they have the strengths and weaknesses of bureaucracies. I also think that the British intelligence services have had some pretty serious scandals over the years, Uh, not just with the politicisation of intelligence during the run-up to the Iraq War, but also the Matrix-Churchill scandal back in the 1990s when an innocent British businessman was basically left on the hook for Uh, an operation that went that went wrong so I I wouldn't romanticize them though of course Le Carre doesn't really romanticize them as well and in a way I think the, the big point is that greed is the undoing of many western countries greed has been the undoing of the west attitude to Russia and to China in the 1990s and the noughties the idea that in the end it's important to get on and make money and nothing else really matters and I think that to some extent, that's been a weakness in the intelligence services as well. that we, They've become the sort of handmaidens of um, Britain's corporate interests. That's always been the case in France, in, in France. Um, but I, I, worry, I worry a, a, a bit, a bit that, that's, um, that the British um, government has been subordinated uh, or, or sees its job is promoting this ridiculous phrase of Britain PLC, um, which I don't think is at all the right approach.
0: I see. Well, that's quite interesting because MI6 and actually a host of other Western intelligence services have as part of their official mission to protect the economic interests of the country. So um, I suppose before the invasion, when Russia, I suppose, showed its true nature, the Russian regime showed its true nature, I suppose before that it would have been calculated that the economic interest of, of the country is to accept Kremlin's money and, uh, and oligarchs.
1: Well, I remember a debate with Tony Brenton, the former British ambassador to Moscow at the Frontline Club a few years ago, where he stated, as a a matter of fact, that it was the government's job to um, raise the living standards of the British people. And I said, no, it isn't. It's the government's job to maintain the long-term security of the country. And there's been a tension between the idea of this is going to be good for jobs and wages and GDP and uh, exports and so on in the short run, and the idea that we may be creating problems in the long run. And I think that we've been far too willing to go for the short-term benefits of uh, trade and investment ties with both Russia and China, and far too naive about the long-term dangers of this. And we now see this with the enormous energy bills, if we had um, adopted the approach which I was advocating when I was energy and natural resource editor at The Economist back 12 years ago, we would have been reducing our dependence on imported fossil fuels, and particularly on Russian gas, and we'd have been building big electricity interconnectors with Iceland and Norway to take advantage of the cheap renewable power that they have there. And I think that would have been expensive at the time, it was seven or eight billion dollars, but we wouldn't And if we combined that with um, moving towards electrification of our domestic heating system. We wouldn't now be having the in, enormous crippling um, bills on landing on households. So what seemed like a cheap good deal 15, 20 years ago, I think, has looked um, far from cheap in retrospect.
0: Yes, of course. And if you if you compare the bills we're paying now with the cost of investing in um, an independent infrastructure back then, I suppose um, it would um, it, it would be a lot more feasible in hindsight.
1: Well, I think we need to think strategically about economics generally and nato used to have an economic warfare department which worried about this all the time that was closed down during the sort of la land era of the of the 1990s but we need to think about every element of our supply chain and where we get things from and what are the alternatives and do we have any dependencies we need to think about every element of our critical national infrastructure of who owns what and what happens to Um, The data that's generated by that, and does that end up in China? And we need to think about every element of our um, export markets and whether we have critical um, dependency on a particular export market, which makes us vulnerable if 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 that's attacked. So Germany, for example, has failed on all those counts. It has huge dependency on russia for energy and huge dependency on china for exports. and what's so frustrating is nobody made the germans do this you didn't have tanks crunching down onto dean linden saying to the germans make these decisions or we open fire." no the germans did this to themselves because they were um greedy arrogant um naive and complacent
0: right right well, that's that, that. That was a great answer. I, I hope um, I hope some politicians listen to this podcast in the end. But um, on a slightly lighter note, you have a connection to Romania, and you're, you're pretty well known actually among Romanian intellectuals. And although I'm Romanian, I'm not much of an intellectual. But could you could you say for the benefit of our audience what what is your connection to Romania and when you travel there, what are the things that you enjoy and uh, the things that you enjoy less?
1: Well, I've been lucky enough to go to Romania many times, starting in the Ceausescu era, and I've also had connections with the Romanian diaspora. I was um, very pleased I met King Michael um, once and had a long discussion with him, and I've followed the uh, twists and turns of Romanian um, politics at home and abroad. I remember during the Cold War, the late 1980s, being particularly um, interested in the um, Silvio Brucan and the um, sort of dissent within the, cons- the the Communist Party, uh, then and um, talking many times to Professor Dennis Delatant, who I'm glad is still with us, a great uh, British expert on on Romania. I am a huge fan of the Romanian uh, culture, Romanian countryside. Um, I think you're you know, the huge sweep of of Different kinds of landscape and architecture you have um, always absolutely thrill me. Um, the multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultural aspects of um, Romanian, um, of m- modern Romania, are a great uh, source of uh, stimulation and, 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 and interest. I think that Romania has also become a serious uh, military power, as a big country, and people often forget that Romania is so much bigger than. Its its neighbours, and I'm pleased to see it playing a positive role in the Black Sea region and being an important um, NATO um, ally in um, Southeastern Europe. So that's good, and I'm glad that the economy is gradually um, improving, although it's far from reaching the potential of the of the country. I think that you know, my criticism and all my disappointment will come as no surprise to most Romanians, which is about um, capacity in public administration. And the continuing pervasive uh, uh, corruption, the difficulties of getting the criminal justice system really to bite hard on on corruption, um, the low level of, um, of morality among some some parts of the political system, and I feel that the country is sort of cursed with a political class that um, so often lets down um, the hard work and ingenuity of of, of, of the people. I hope eventually that's changing, and I think you know, remembering what Romania was like in the 1990s today is incomparably better. Um, but 30 years have gone past, and it could be so much, um, so much better if Romania had adopted some of the um, approaches of, of na- neighbouring countries. Um, so I'm impatient for Romania's future, but I'm, um, very, I am very feel very honoured to be associated with the country.
0: Great, thank you. Um, I tend to agree with you on, on, on all the points, especially on, on development and how it could happen a lot faster if we had a less fearful and, uh, I suppose, to a degree incompetent political class. But anyway, you mentioned NATO and Romania's role in NATO, and you recently wrote a story saying the next chief of NATO should be Estonian but in Romania there's a great deal of speculation that our president Klaus Johannes might be considered for the job. I wonder what you think about that. Would he be a good fit? Should he get it? What are your other comments about this? Thank you.
1: Well I think it's high time that NATO had a woman as Secretary General and um, I think that's very important. I also think it's high time that there was a Secretary General from the um, countries that have experienced the misfortune of communism and are aware of the threats to the um, that uh, Russia poses I think um, that narrows it down quite a lot if one's looking for a and I think that Kaya Kalas would be a very good fit for that I also think actually Christian Freeland from Canada would be very good she's the deputy prime Minister of Canada has played a formidable role in um, sharpening Canada's foreign policy when she was foreign minister and although she's and she's from a Ukrainian family, Ukrainian-Canadian family, so she would be also a very strong choice. I have met President Johannes on several occasions and I am Im- impressed with his um, personal qualities of gravity. He has He's a, 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 a serious and educated man um, with, um, I think, good, good instincts. My worry would be about his ability to implement change. I don't feel that The way Romania has been run over um, his years as president um, has exactly showcased his ability to uh, implement change in a difficult environment. So I I would worry a bit about the effectiveness um, from that point of view. Um, And um, so I I would certainly welcome any any NATO secretary general into office and would want to give them a fair hearing. But um, he wouldn't be my number one or number two choice.
0: Okay, I understand. Well, that's absolutely fair enough. And also on NATO, the alliance is about to include Sweden and Finland, which I think is great news and I suppose you, you agree. But the question is, after this, what, what next for NATO after this? Is it, is it time to consolidate or is it possible to expand? Do you envision NATO even including Ukraine at some point in the future?
1: I think that the continued... Um... The open door policy is very important for NATO. That European countries that uh, meet NATO standards um, should be able to uh, apply to NATO, and NATO has the um, right to accept new members. I think that the first priority of NATO is the defense of its existing members, and there's a great deal of work to do on that. And although Sweden and Finland's membership creates conditions in which the problems, on the eastern flank can be solved, it doesn't actually solve them. So I would like to see a lot more attention in NATO to optimising defence spending. We spend a lot of money and spend it very badly. We um, spend far too little on modern weapons and on stocks and stockpiles of equipment. Um, our military mobility is bad, so moving stuff around is difficult. We don't have a a clear command structure for eastern the northeastern flank. We don't have the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance assets that we need. We don't have the air and missile defense that we need. We don't have the military infrastructure in the Baltic states that we need to put the um, outside forces. And we're moving towards not just um, uh, d- 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 deterrence by denial, uh, meaning not an inch, not a soul comes under Russian occupation. We'll require a major Um, investment of time and effort um, to protect the Baltic states. Um, All that's got to happen. I think it can happen. I'm reasonably confident it will happen, um, but it's not going to happen just by being wished for. So I think that's the first task. The second is the Black Sea, which we don't have a strategy for. Relations with Turkey are difficult, and we need to rethink a lot of what we do in the the Black Sea. Romania obviously will play a big part in that. then there's the question of military aid to ukraine which is very important and we're running out of stocks we don't have the production lines to keep on producing weapons at the rate the um, ukrainians are consuming them than which we are donating them so we need a fundamental rethink of how we're going to sustain military aid to ukraine in the long run i would like to see much more pressure on russia and shorten the war that way i'd rather that we win the war for ukraine by putting pressure on russia rather than the ukrainians Um, having to die for our freedom and security. And so there's a lot more we can do to make life difficult for Russia, including impeding Russian um, exports of oil, gas, coal uh, and other things, and also going after Russian dirty money abroad.
0: Right. Well, that brings me very neatly to the next question about dirty money and its role in uh, international security. Do you think now that the Russians have, have shown us what a trust is they're capable of committing, do you think the flow of Kremlin and KGB-linked money in the West is coming to an end? And if not, what what is there to do to stop it? What policies should the governments adopt, especially the British government, that they haven't adopted yet?
1: Well, there's an enormous to-do list. And I... I'm delighted that we have started um, on this, but I'm very frustrated. It's very little and very late. So we need a thoroughgoing reform of the financial and legal system in um, in Britain to make it difficult for not only Russians, but other um, sources of, of foreign dirty money to get in in the first place. So we need to have tough rules on the um, registration of beneficial ownership. For example, if you don't know who owns a company, that company shouldn't be really able to do business and I would deny all these shell companies with um, murky offshore um, or mythical owners access to the legal system. I would say fine you can do business with each other but you can't sue and you can't be sued in the British courts and that would immediately push them away from the um uh, out out of the sort of mainstream of British business life I would also say that if you can't prove your beneficial ownership um, you can't own assets here and when you file your tax return on real estate for example um, you have to state beneficial ownership that has to be validated by a solicitor and if you can't do that the asset will be confiscated and auctioned off the money spent on good causes so i'm I'm in favor of a really uh, revolutionary tough approach to this Um, and the government's nowhere near doing it and that's one of the reasons i've gone into politics
0: well that's interesting and um, in that case i'm going to ask about your campaigning your campaigning in uh, in probably the the wealthiest area of of the uk if not uh, and if not it's certainly one of one of the top I suppose, and a lot of the, a lot of your constituents and prospective constituents would be naturalized Russian elites and ex-Soviet elites. Some of them have repudiated the Kremlin, and some haven't. And I just wonder: could you recall some of your conversations on the doorstep? What What are you saying to these people? And What are they saying back to
1: you? Well, I think there's a very wide range of reactions. And first of all, you know, most people on the doorstep who I talk to about this are not Russians but they are fed up with uh, this tide of dirty money which inflates house prices and makes it very difficult to build a community if you don't know who owns the flat above you or the house next to you is digging a basement and you have some difficulties with that and you ask who are these people and it's just a company in the British Virgin Islands you've no idea who the real owner is. So this is a scourge um, in central London and we've We've been very naive about it, thinking yippee, all this lovely foreign money is coming into our property market. We haven't thought through at all what the negative effects. are. When I talk to Russians, the arrangement of, of of opinions, and there are there's a slice of Russians living abroad who are what you might call liberal imperialists. And although they're they're fed up with Putin and they hate the fact their nice middle class lifestyle in Russia, or in Moscow usually. Uh, which they've enjoyed for the last you know, 10 or 15 years has come to an abrupt end they don't feel any responsibility for the war and they blame western sanctions almost as much as they blame putin and i've had people with a sort of extraordinary sense of entitlement and aggrieved you know, a tone of voice saying this is so unfair and what, you know, why is this happening to me and i'm afraid that my answer to them is really you have tolerated the putin regime um, and benefited actually from some of aspects of it over the last 15 years and its payback time and it's a bit like Germans in 1939 who um, fled Hitler um, having had a very good time in the previous 10 years um, or whatever it was under, under under Hitler's rule and didn't feel that they were um, had any responsibility for it so I, 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 I have limited sympathy for um, you know, the, these Russians there are others who are extraordinarily um, committed to the anti-Putin cause and feel deep solidarity with Ukraine and go to Ukrainian demonstrations and, uh, you know, busily trying to build the opposition, uh, a sort of anti-imperialist opposition to Putin abroad. I have to say I think they're in the minority. And um, and then there are others who are um, just take a very sort of uh, passive approach and just think, oh well, you know, life goes on, I've just got to um, get on with my life and educate my kids and try and find a job. Um, but I, I, I think that this is a huge challenge, not just for central London, but for Britain going forward, is we need to wean ourselves off this tide this tide of dirty money which has enriched so many people in London, but at such great cost to our the integrity of our political and economic system.
0: Right. Well, I've noticed actually, not just in the UK, but in in the Baltics as well, that there is a bit of self-recrimination about the the way that we filled our boots with Kremlin money over the years. And coincidentally, the Baltics and the UK are also among the most dedicated supporters of, of Ukraine and I just wonder do you think there's a link with that do you think there's a bit of guilt and some sort of uh, notions of compensation and 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 repentance because the uk and the baltics through through their banking systems have enabled Putin to rise and gain complete power in russia and there's there might be a bit of uh, a bit of regret now do you think
1: yes i think that there's not much most people in the baltic states and do not feel um, particularly responsible for the money laundering that was carried out by their banks, and they would feel that the, this only really happened. It was, it was, it was. Uh, they were the the vehicle for the money laundering, but the, the um, brains behind it were in Scandinavia, and of course it, it had a very um, important uh, London connection as as well. And I think London, as the money laundering capital of the world, is in no position really to lecture, lecture anybody else. I think that Boris Johnson's support for ukraine was essentially opportunistic he saw that there was was a chance to look um statesmanlike and take a tough um tough approach that would go, um, go well with american um american foreign policy and also that um, to some extent put pressure on the on the labor party um to match his um tough stance and i'm delighted that we did what we did i think it's actually the, the headlines rather over overestimate its importance and what really matters in ukraine is the um, amount of mil- military equipment that the united states is providing and you know all other countries combined are less than what america is doing actually the most important thing britain's done i think is on the training front and i'm very pleased about that but that isn't quite as glamorous as the as as the um, sort of you know here's a bright shiny thing that we're giving to ukraine uh i think that the it's also distracted attention from the very important question of dirty russian money going into the conservative party and one has to be very careful about this because these people are um, litigious and you have to be um they always say no, no wrongdoing has been proved and their british citizens and their donations have been cleared by the relevant authorities but i think there's a stench hanging over the conservative party of um offshore money and you one only has to look at the, the way in which some of the senior people in uh, the Conservative Party have made, have had such extraordinary good fortune in their business dealings in strange parts of the world, and um, draw connection between that, uh, with, with that, and the Conservative Party's reluctance to investigate the relationship between offshore and onshore finance in this country. And without mentioning any names, um, that's I think is a, is is a serious national security threat for this country.
0: Right. Well, that's interesting. I think this conclusion is permeating even even the Conservative Party, and I, I know they're they're uh, rivals of yours now. But you know, we have we have a business audience for this podcast as well. So could you explain for the skeptics out there, and there are, there still are a few skeptics of the link between security and um, money laundering, and could you say exactly why? corruption and economic crime are so pernicious and they degrade democracy and national security and what bankers and business professionals in in the UK, US, Switzerland, Luxembourg, UAE, Singapore and so forth, why should they care about protecting the integrity of the democratic system? What what is the enlightened self-interest view of this?
1: Well, first of all, I think enlightened self-interest is a nice phrase, but one needs to always stress the enlightened bit. Um, that I, 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 it may well be in people's self-interest to do the wrong thing, and individually um, have a benefit from it. But we have you know, we have collective action problems, and I think we need to be more um, you know, f- focus always on the, the the outcome as well as the individual. I think that the fundamental point about um, economic crime and dirty money is that it degrades the institutional infrastructure, which is what we need for democracy to work. So it partly makes people feel there's one law for the rich and one law for everybody else. So it degrades uh, trust and confidence in the rule of law because you see that other people are getting away paying basically no tax. Yes, and
0: without without strong... uh, Democratic institutions to hold everyone accountable. Eventually, all businesses have to lose because they can't rely on uh, on a, on an even playing
1: field. So it, 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 that was my, going to be my second point. So that then then create creates a, an uneven playing field, which is um, and it's hard for law abiding individuals and law abiding businesses to compete if someone else has got some advantage because they're crooked. I think it also creates concentrations of economic and political power that distort decision making. And so you see this particularly when it comes to political donations. I'm running a political campaign, and I raise my money in fift- 25 and 50 pound, sometimes 100. And if I'm incredibly lucky, someone may give me a few thousand pounds. Uh, but this is a tiny amounts compared with what uh, you know, what I call the dodgy donors will give to the Conservative Party, and they write checks for hundreds of thousands, or half a million, a million pounds. And this dis- this does dis- it means that the um, conservatives have a kind of far power when it comes whether it's to buying ads on social media or just pumping out leaflets or billboards or whatever that their rivals um, don't. And so this is a kind of you know, political speech which benefits the um, the, the rich and obviously rich people because they're rich can do things that poor people can't and that's a a fact of life but i think we 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 can't we 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 have to apply more scrutiny to the way in which money gets into the political system and particularly who the the sort of um, inner circles of donors are and i'm particularly troubled by boris johnson's personal connections with some of these people Again, we can't talk about because they're so litigious.
0: Right. Well, that's interesting. And now that he's uh, he's going out of office, I suppose we're going to have to see what what he does next. I'm uh, I'm quite intrigued because um, I don't see him as a business professional going going to work as a, I suppose non executive director to some corporation. So I'm just very interested in uh, in finding out how he's going to earn his living after after leaving office. But we, we'll just have to see about that.
1: I I could I couldn't I couldn't care less. I never want to hear his name again i never want to see him again I, <laughs> I want him to go off to the american lecture circuit and just uh um, live on a diet of ru- r- rubber chicken and phony applause for the rest of his life
0: oh dear, ok, ok, alright uh, we'll have to see, I think he would quite enjoy the, the chicken in America given that he campaigned to, to have chlorinated chicken here as well but that's beside, the, beside, the, beside the, the scope of this podcast now, I'll bring up our advertiser again H5 Strategies in Bucharest specialising in uh, political and executive advisory around the regions of Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Africa, we thank them and uh, just to make it clear the journalism is, is completely independent there is no interference now and there will never be any interference from advertisers in the content of our journalism that said back to the questions the war in ukraine you've been warning in in the newspapers about the dangers of russia's destruction of food supply chains in ukraine which has a global effect and we've seen russian officials admitting publicly that this is part of the strategy they're using and i just wonder what you think might be the solutions are we just to accept that we're hostages to to vladimir putin when it comes to our food security
1: Absolutely not. No, I mean, I, I've been arguing very strongly that we need decisive intervention on behalf of the millions of people who are facing famine. Um, it's already very late, maybe too late, but I, I. we had the Berlin airlift in 1948. I'd be in favour of the Odessa sea lift right now. And I'd like to see a Western task force of NATO and other countries, probably including the Egyptians and others, um, sailing into the Black Sea with the consent of the Turks. Um, I'd like to see um, Western military assistance to Ukraine to protect Odessa with Patriot missiles and anything, and coastal batteries and anything else they need. So that the Ukrainians who are confident they can demine the um, sea lanes to Odessa, and I'd like to see um, bulk freighters going in and collecting the grain from the um, port with ne- if necessary. Uh, um, repairs to the port facilities to enable that to happen, and those freighters insured by a consortium of of Western governments backing the insurance and sailing out again, and a very clear message to the Russians that if you interfere in any way with this, we'll shoot back and shoot back hard, and anyone doing any ships that attack us will join the musk at the bottom of the Black Sea. That's what we should be doing, and we can do it. We're 10 times more than 10 times, or 20 times bigger and richer than Russia. Um, there's no reason why we should be um, intimidated by a country that's got a GDP the size of Italy. And um, we should also say this if you, um, you know, wave your nuclear weapons at us, we will wave our cyber weapons at you and bring your economy to a complete halt. Um, so there's, there's an enormous amount we could do. Uh, this is not a problem of means, it's a problem of political willpower. That's what we lack.
0: I see. And could you, could you speculate uh, constructively a little bit uh, about why you think there's no political willpower? for the moment anyway to do this
1: i think it's partly a function of of the personalities involved we have a number of political leaders in the west who are are not terribly experienced uh, or have governments that are finding it hard to muster a head of steam behind a decisive foreign policy and Particularly of, of Germany here, I think the Biden administration is distracted by Asia. It's sort of, it's sort of half in Europe and half out, uh, half supporting Ukraine, half not wanting it to escalate. So we're very unfortunate with our American uh, president at the moment. I'm you know, disappointed with the um, with the Biden administration generally. Um, generosity is, towards Ukraine is no substitute for decisiveness. And I think that obviously Britain's been distracted by all the shenanigans going on in Downing Street. And we've had a French president has been uh, distracted by his re-election campaign and has a penchant for ineffective grandstanding rather than building effective international coalitions.
0: I understand.
1: So, So we've got a lot of problems. But in the end, you know, we have to cook with what we've got in the kitchen. There isn't some alternative planet out there where we have a chance to do it it again. We're missing the chance right now. And millions of people are going to starve and that will send waves of migration which will be very destabilising and the human misery is just colossal and it's already colossal human misery in many parts of the world whether it's the Yemen civil war or what's happening in Ethiopia, the Sahel and elsewhere. And we tend to turn our eyes away from that and um, pretend it's not happening. But it doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means we're not looking at it.
0: Yes, yes. It's it's a a terrible, terrible tragedy. On on top of the tragedy going on in in Ukraine, I'm, I'm amazed at how much devastation Putin could unleash. And this is the big world question I had for you, because I know you think about, you know, the tides of history and stuff like that. And we've seen... A fascist turn of of political discourse in Russia lately and to me as an observer as a reporter it feels like something a little bit bigger than than a regional war and uh, you know just uh, a war between neighbors and uh, local sort of regional imperialism. It feels like the end of an era, it feels like the end of the relative comfort we had after the fall of the USSR and uh, the return of genocide to Europe frankly although the Russians haven't managed at least to, to carry out the genocide, the way they probably intended, and it could be the start of an all-consuming global struggle, if not a proper war, in the sense that you have a, you have a bunch of alliances between autocracies, and you've got the, the American President Biden talking about a fundamental conflict between democracies and dictatorships. I, I wonder how you see this this theory. Is this is this right to have a, an, a sort of all-encompassing view of what's going on?
1: Well, I th- I'm always sceptical about all-encompassing views. The Germans have this idea that they, there must be a Gesandt concept behind everything that you need to have, and, and I think the world is actually very messy. But I do think that, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, there's a fundamental problem with Russian imperialism, and this is the, the, uh, the Russian dreams of empire um, both fuel the repression at home and the aggression abroad. And I think one of the most important books written about Russia in recent years, is Alexander Etkin's book of internal colonization, where he says that uh, Russia is the, I think he argues, the only country in the world where the rulers treat their own people the way other empires treat their um, their colonies, and so Russia is sort of colonized by its own its own rulers, and this leads to all sorts of um, um, this predatory state is both predatory at home in terms of its extraction of natural resource rents and bureaucratic rents. But also its uh, hostility towards neighbouring countries, and that's a, and I think that's a, a, a very useful fundamental sort of shaping concept that we won't until Russia becomes a nation state, um, rather than an empire. It's always going to be a very difficult neighbour, and I think that the idea of a global confrontation with with Russia is is. Difficult, made made difficult because Russia's actually so weak. I think we can, we may be in the era of of a kind of polarizing conflict with China, which is a serious economic contender, very large economy, by some measures the world's largest economy, and has um, a well thought out political system that it tries to export, has real soft power, and real allies, and a real plan. And Russia doesn't really have any of that. Russia's not a serious global power. It doesn't have a plan. It doesn't, its soft power is a sort of complete mess. And it's making taking advantage of the weakness of the West, really, rather than making a, a bid for global leadership. So I, I put them in slightly different categories. And I also think that you know, we have it's the, the, the local problem or the regional problem we have with Russia in the sort of area between the Black Sea and the Baltics. Is of a different magnitude to the kind of to the, to the to the looming confrontation we have with China, where you can link them together is you can say that if we get this confrontation with Russia right, then we're in a much better position to deal with China. So if we show unity and decisiveness, it will make it much less likely that the Chinese try to test the West in some kind of conflict of of willpower in the in the Pacific. So they'll see the West does at the end get its act together. And if there is a confrontation, the fact that we've shown, rehearsed our unity and decisiveness, um, will make it easier for us to withstand Chinese pressure. And conversely, if we get this wrong with Russia, it sends a big green light to China. You can do what you want. The West isn't serious. And if we try and resist China when it does whatever it wants to do, um, there will be a greater chance that we fail.
0: Right. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. That's uh, that's a great answer. I hope again, I hope some politicians are going to be listening to this now between this uh, dichotomy of democracy and dictatorship. There are huge nuances beginning with Turkey and the UAE and India, which are allies of the West, especially Turkey. Turkey is a a, a cornerstone of, of NATO, I suppose. And um, they're authoritarian countries, Turkey is probably, qual- can be qualified as a dictatorship, also the UAE, and at the same time they're working with, with uh, Western democracies just as much as they're working with Russia and China. I just wonder, do you think these countries are winning the geopolitical um, game at the moment and uh, is this alliance with them a necessary moral compromise that the West has to do and we just have to live with it? Or um, what, uh, what, what is the answer to this?
1: Well, Turkey is a very difficult issue. There's no doubt about it. One just has to be um, frank about this, that we don't have the Turkish leadership that we'd like. We have the Turkish leadership that we've got. And so we, uh, um, and there's no point in pretending anything else. We can, um, I think that looking back historically, NATO had Portugal as a member when Portugal was under the Salazar dictatorship. We had Greece under the colonels. We had Turkey when Turkey was under military rule. So in the end, fundamentally, NATO is a military alliance with some sort of political infrastructure but it's not actually an alliance of it hasn't historically always been an alliance of democracies and so there's um we have to be realistic about this and i think turkey is not actually a dictatorship you know erdogan does lose every now and again they lost the the mayor's race in istanbul for example um and he's under still under the, the constraints of public opinion and um so I'd, I think yeah you, know, you, you you can't yeah you know, it would be quite wrong to put Turkey in the same category as know, Azerbaijan or one of the central uh, 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 you know, country where the, you guarantee that the uh, um, people in charge always win and there's still there's you know, bits bits of an independent judicial system and um, other parts of the, um, inst- the other other institutional constraints so I, I i remain optimistic about turkey in the long run the other point i make is a lot of this is our fault in, in europe we have been, mucked turkey around we offered it uh, for decades the prospect of joining the eu and always been too scared actually to do it and i think if we'd seized that that opportunity you know, 22 years 20 years ago um and said right okay you're on the right track let's get going and we'd offered you know, visa free access and all the other things they wanted Um, Sure, there would have been some bumps bumps in the road, um, but we would have uh, established our good faith, and it would have been much easier for the people who agree with us in Turkey to to win elections. We also, I think, behaved shamefully over Cyprus. Turkey did what it was asked to with Northern Cyprus, um, but we, in the end, bowed to Greek and Greek separate pressure and didn't uh, follow up on our part of the deal. So I think the Turks are quite—it's quite quite reasonable for the Turks to feel. Uh, resentful. Um, we need to get back and start repairing this um, relationship, and do it sooner rather than later.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Now back to back to Ukraine. Uh, some Eastern European analysts, some some of them Russians and um, in in general ex uh, ex Soviet citizens, I suppose. They, they say and they warn that Russia has entered a long term cycle of state sponsored warmongering and conflict. And uh, they warn that Russia would very much welcome a, a conflict with uh, with NATO, a direct war with NATO, which is what uh, our leaders, I, I think, are, are trying to avoid at the moment. And if, if they win in Ukraine or if, if they conquer a big chunk of Ukraine, these analysts are warning Russia is very likely to to go after a nato country such as i suppose lithuania or, or latvia uh, how do you see that do you think there's really no other way and what uh, what is your analysis of that
1: well i think that first of all the russian military is in no state to start anything new right now the um there's a a real um constraints on russia for uh the, uh, just in terms of keeping the offensive going in eastern Ukraine, and they're having some difficulties in so- southern Ukraine, and we see that the uh, from you know, open source and other intelligence reports that the Russian forces near the Baltic and Finnish border are being reduced very sharply in order to keep keep things going. So I think we don't face uh, an immediate threat, um, but we we have seen that the Russian leadership has a capacity for reckless. Um, illegal, aggressive behaviour. And my worry is that we get some sort of ceasefire in Ukraine um, at some point, and then Russia will then rebuild its forces and will either decide to attack Ukraine again or try something else. Now, the Baltic states are difficult to defend. We do a lot of work to make them um, thoroughly defensible, and if we don't do that, they will be a tempting target. I think the Russia would be Unwise to pick a fight with the United NATO because NATO is enormously bigger and richer than Russia. But there, there are circumstances in which one might think that NATO was um, divided or ineffective. So, if we have, for example, a different American president, or even just a long period of political chaos in Washington following the next presidential election, or if the United States is very heavily distracted with the conflict in the uh, Western Pacific. Um, any of these uh, things might lead the Russians to think now's it's now's ch- time to try something in NATO. So I think that the European countries in NATO need to do a great deal more work in um, pooling uh, their resources, making themselves much more effective, focusing on the um, deterrence by denial in, um, in the Baltic states. And then we should be OK, because in the end, Russia's not that big a, you know, the, the, Russia is not that bigger. Russia is, is a, a, a much smaller economy than we sometimes think. But you know, that's the. Uh, but it's one thing for me to say it should happen; it's another thing for it actually to happen.
0: Right. So I get the sense now that uh, you're quite optimistic about Ukraine's uh, prospects in the war. I suppose this puts you in 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 a, in a similar group as one of the top Romanian scholars, Armand Goshu, who said recently that this war will forge Ukraine into the most important U.S. ally in Europe and one of history's great nations because of its heroism and self-sacrifice against Russia. And Personally, I think this could be a bit premature, but I wouldn't mind accepting that it's correct. Actually, I, I, I would uh, I would be very happy if it turned out this way. I just wonder what you think about it.
1: Well, I'm very cautious about being optimistic on this front. I mean, A, because Ukraine has suffered so much already that nothing um, will take, will, will you know, restore to life the people. Tens of thousands of people have been killed. Nothing will restore the physical and um, mental injuries of people who've suffered the uh, the destruction has been so huge that i don't think one can ever uh, there's no silver lining to that cloud so that's the first thing i think that even if russia withdrew right now to its um pre-february the 24th territories which i think would be is unlikely even if they did um post-war ukraine is going to be traumatized and it'll be a bit like um, France after 1945 that you'll have a lot of tensions between people who stayed and people who left um, people who collaborated and people who didn't um, people who get compensated and people who don't so there's going to be the, this, this is going to be a you know, a, 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 de- a decade of um, needed or more of healing uh, from the the, 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 the trauma the, tra- the trauma of the war I think that there will be a lot of Western Um, effort going into rebuilding post-war Ukraine, and that will be good, and a lot of political energy and patriotism to try and do that, but there will also be the um, the polarisation and and divisions. Countries tend to stick together during a war, Um, but afterwards um, you have to deal with uh, the underlying political conflicts that are still there. So I'm afraid, I, I, I feel that this war is the worst thing to happen in my lifetime, probably in the lifetime of almost everyone um, listening to this podcast, and we've just got to be realistic about it, and also quite angry that if the West had done one one t- hundredth of what it's doing now to support Ukraine before um, February the 24th, the war probably wouldn't have happened. So it's a bit like the pandemic. It's a clear sign of how enormous cost of um, short-sighted complacency. I do think that um, the long-term effect for the Putin regime is very bad, and in the end, this is probably going to lead to the fall of the Putin regime and possibly even um, you know, very fundamental and disruptive changes within Russia. but one as I said before, one shouldn't count that as a silver lining to what's already a very big black card.
0: Right, well, a very sober conclusion to our podcast. Thanks again for joining us and for making the time. Best wishes to you and to everyone listening. And one final shout out to H5 Strategies in Bucharest, Executive and Political Advisory Group, specialised in Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Africa. See you next month and all the best. Well, thank you so
1: much for your excellent questions.